Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Pick your Bibles in your hands. We're going to read before we sit down. Thank you, Jesus. Genesis 22. Do you like this hall? The AC is not quite there, but it's better. We're still on the matter, okay? Genesis 22 from verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a bond offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the bond offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, on the when? Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, for where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Everybody, verse 8, together want to go. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for clarity. Thank you for wisdom and a proper presentation bringing revelation to the minds of everyone here present and everyone tuned in online. And we thank you because after this service, our conviction will be strengthened regarding the salvation and the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Tell out amen. amen. All right, you may please be seated. Hallelujah. Now, I want to start by asking a question. How many of you have ever read a book or books that you did not understand? Raise your hand. You read it and you were like, <laughs> what language is this? All right. Now, if the Bible was or is amongst those books, raise your hand. All right. Thank you for your honesty. Of course, my hand is up as well. For, for many years, I did not understand the Bible at all. All right. But you see, the Bible is easy to understand. You just need the right keys. All right. The Bible is easy to understand. You just need the right keys. And there's so many keys to biblical interpretation The most profound that I I think I've found can be summarized with a quote that says, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Everybody say the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And this is what I mean. What do we mean when we say the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed? I mean that when the apostles were preaching in the early church, they had no New Testament. So the only Bible they had was Genesis to Malachi. And using Genesis to Malachi, they preached about Jesus. They preached about his redemptive work. They explained his redemptive work from the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. They thought about the Holy Spirit. They thought about believers' authority. 
they thought about the gifts of the Spirit. Every single, in fact, the New Testament is but a commentary of the Old. You see that? Because the apostles never actually taught anything new. So the Bible tells us, for instance, about the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Bible clearly tells us that he was reading from the book of Isaiah. KJV says he was reading Esaias. And Philip joined himself close to the chariot and asked, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch, honestly, like many of us have been this morning, said, how can I accept someone explains to me? And the Bible says, Philip joined himself with that chariot and beginning at that verse, he explained unto him the Christ. Praise the Lord. So, he was actually re reading Isaiah chapter 53, where he says, like a sheep, before the sharers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He was led to the slaughter. You know, when you read that, with your untrained mind, you just say, oh, he's talking about butchers and how they sell meat. But now Philip, by the Spirit of God, explains that that was actually a metaphor for Christ. He was using what theologians call types and shadows. Have you ever heard riddles before? Riddles before using analogies to typify something. And that's how most of the Old Testament was written, especially, when it, especially as it pertained to God and salvation and New Testament revelation. And so when you read it, it's not as obvious. And so the reality is you stand a better chance understanding the Old Testament when you read the New Testament. You see that? You stand a better chance understanding the Old Testament when you read the New Testament. There are stories that you may never truly understand until you read the New Testament. And a good example of that story is the one we just read, Genesis chapter 22 from verse 1 to 8. When you read that, you have a lot of questions. You have a lot of questions. You see, when you become a dad and you have to teach your kids the word of God, you're going to be forced to learn how to explain better. Because there are some things that were not really obvious to you that become obvious. For instance, is that IBK? Oh my God, you're in Abuja. Good to see you. For instance, I think I even posted it online as my daughter and I were doing one of our storybook moments. My wife recorded and it was an epic moment. So I was reading the story of David and Goliath. First of all, it's weird because... My daughter likes Goliath. And I'm trying, I'm still trying to explain to her that Goliath is the bad guy. She said, no, daddy, Goliath is strong. I said, no. <laughs> so, so, I'm still trying to explain that to her. But, you know, many times she wants to make fun and she just comes, I'm big like Goliath. I said, no. No, dear, stop it. You're like David, okay? She just likes the fact that Goliath is strong and big. You know what I'm reading? To her, that epic story, David versus Goliath, you know, my religious mind did not draw my attention to the fact that it was actually a battle. It was a gory scene. Someone died. Somehow I didn't realize, but as I shared the story with her, my daughter has a weird way of ex expressing fear. She covers her ears. She doesn't want to hear anymore, you know. So she just covered her ear, and I said, why are you covering your ears? She said, I'm scared. Praise the Lord. And you see, many of us who grew up in church, these stories don't really stand out to be as awry as they would appear to someone who doesn't have any religious experience. So you, you mean to tell me that God, the good God, who you say is love, told a man who had been waiting for a child almost three decades to take that child, the only child whom he loves, and to go to a mountain and sacrifice that child. Those are the kind of things you think about and you push away in your mind. Like, no, 
I won't think about it. Well, God is there. And you're like, you feel tempted to say, what kind of God is this? Praise the Lord. We have to talk about it. Why would God say that? So two questions to answer. Why would God say that? And you see, if you're a good Bible student, it's even going to be strange for you because you know God. You know who God is. And you know that if there was anything that was an abomination to God, it was sacrificing human beings, talk less of your children. One of the major reasons God drove the people, the former inhabitants of the promised land away, was child sacrifice. That was one of the major reasons. They worshipped an idol called Molech, and they would give, it, it, was, it was gory, it, it, it was such a huge abomination. They had this huge idol made of precious metal, and then the idol has his hand outstretched. And these guys would take their newborn children, heat up the idol until it's so hot, and put the children there until the heat kills them. That's what they were doing. And to drown the sound of the crying of the children, they would sit at the base of the idol and beat drums to, you know, to drown their conscience and just to overshadow the crying so that it doesn't affect them. God gave strict instructions against sacrificing of human beings. I'm going to read just three texts out of many. Look at Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy or enemy. <laughs> when someone says that, I say, everything are warfare for this church. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Deuteronomy 12 verse 31. It's better than ecclesiastics. Someone said, open your Bible, ecclesiastics. Uh -uh. Where you see Jay inside? I'm still amazed. <laughs> Alright, De Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. You're going to read all three verses for me. One, two, go. That's okay. Go back to 31. Go back to 31. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. That's, that's very clear. So he told them there's a way to go about your devotion. Not that way. And then he talked about how pagan nations gave their children up in sacrifice. And he says, not, not, not me. You won't do that to me ever. I will never require that you do that. Look at Deuteronomy, the same Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. Are you there? Are you there or the screen is there? All right, read together one, two, go. All right, so here you see God classifying child sacrifice to be as big an abomination as witchcraft or sorcery. He says, there shall not be found. He's speaking as one who is sovereign over that nation. He says, there shall not be found anyone who causes his son or his daughter to pass through fire. You see that? Open to Leviticus, your favorite book, isn't it? <laughs> Leviticus Chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. Are you there? Read together. It says you will not allow any of your children pass through fire. This is clear and emphatic. It says neither will you profane the name 
of your, the Lord your God. Meaning that's going to be profanity to the Lord your God. You will not do that. So now, God is asking Abraham to do it. And you're like, is something wrong? Maybe there's a mic God used to use to speak from heaven. And God was sleeping. One silly angel just came to make a joke. And tested the mic. Test one, two. And then, Abraham! Wow. <laughs> I mean, you just have to wonder what was happening. Because that's strange, okay? Praise the Lord. Another reason it's very strange is because of the word that God gave Abraham. In Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, in Genesis chapter 21 verse 12, Sarah is prevailing on Abraham to separate Ishmael from the house so that there won't be any discord when it comes to inheritance and to the carrying of the promise. And Abraham is like, uh, he loves Ishmael. So Abraham has an issue with that, but then God speaks in verse 12 of Genesis 21. It says, but God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, everybody read from, for, from there, want to go. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Read it again, want to go. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Hallelujah. Meaning, your generation will be reckoned through Isaac. Your lineage will be reckoned through Isaac. The promise that I gave you that your children will be as the sand of the seashore will be fulfilled in Isaac, through Isaac. Why did God go through all this trouble? Take him in the cold of the day to look at the stars to see if he can tell them. He says, that's how many your children will be. He ends up giving him one. He says, through this single seed, my promise to give you nations will be fulfilled. And then... Just the next chapter, not too long after, God speaks one morning and says, Take your son. Your only son whom you love. So what's happening? What about the promise? What about how long I spent waiting for this child, trusting you? You gave him to me. You want to take him back? Right after you told me that my whole lineage would be from this single seed. Have you seen people who have only one son? Have you seen the way they behave? They don't joke. Talk less of when they are old. Now, Abraham is an old man. And you're telling him, your only son, whom you love. <laughs> so there are questions. Why did God do it? Why did Abraham agree that's another question right why would Abraham do it so this is just an example of the kind of ambiguity you're going to have when you're reading stories just straight out of the Old Testament but well this story was explained in the New Testament turn your Bibles Hebrews chapter 11 Hebrews 11. I want to wait for you to open it so that it will be personal to you. Just in case what we have on the screen is doctored. Are you in Hebrews 11 verse 17? It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Does that phrase sound familiar? Yes. We're coming to that. Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So, clearly, God said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Yet he offered him up. And he tells you why. He says, concluding that God 
was able to raise him up even from the dead. From which he also received him in a figurative sense. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. So, why did Abraham do it? Abraham had what you call simple faith. And simple faith is the most difficult faith. It's such a way that God said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now God is saying, sacrifice Isaac to me. He's saying, oh, if God said, in Isaac shall my seed be called. And he's saying, sacrifice Isaac. That means, even if I kill Isaac, he will raise him back to life. I have so much faith in his promise, in his word, that in Isaac shall my seed be called. I have so much faith in what God has said. And Isaac shall your seed be called. That if he says sacrifice Isaac, that means God did not explain to him. This was the conclusion he came up with on his own. That means God plans to raise Isaac up. Oh my goodness. Oh, if we will learn to believe God like this. If only we will learn to believe God like this. Let me tell you this. Your conviction will always influence your conclusions. Your conviction will always influence your con conclusions. So, what do you do when God gave you a prophetic word? And from that, I mean, you were in church, you know, you were on your own, and your case was mentioned, and you were rejoicing, oh, praise God. God said, I'm healed. They mentioned my case. And from that day, it appears like things are going south. Maybe even getting worse. Your conviction will influence your conclusion. What do you do when God said you're going to step into a new dimension of favor this year and your career is going south? Your conviction will always influence your conclusions. What do you do when God gave you a clear word? What conclusions do you come up with? This was Abraham's conclusion. If God said, in Isaac shall my seed be called, in Isaac shall my seed be called. And if he's asking me to kill Isaac, that means he plans to raise Isaac up. I mean, he came up with that conclusion on his own. What conclusions do you come up with when you're going through a tough time? Some even say, I, I'm not sure there's a God. Are you sure there's a God? Are you? <laughs> Your conviction will always influence your conclusions. And let me tell you this, the greatest sources of ambiguity in your conviction also happen to be the greatest opportunities for the demonstration of your faith. Now, that action from Abraham is probably one of the greatest demonstrations, practical demonstrations of faith known in the Bible. Oh, I'm not going to doubt that in Isaac shall my seed be called. Even if God says, put him on a, on, a, on a platform and slit his throat. Slit his throat. I'm still going to believe that in Isaac, listen, I would rather believe that God will raise him up than believe that God changed his mind. It's easier for me to believe that God will raise him up than to believe that God's word has failed. Such a faith in the word of God. Praise the Lord. And so the basic revelation of Jairus is this. Are you with me? The basic revelation of Jairus, there's a deeper revelation, but the basic revelation of Jairus is this. When a prophetic word has gone forth, even the contrary situations will align. Not only will contrary situations align, they will further confirm that prophecy. Not distort it. Not render it null and void. Everything that appears to be a contrary circumstance will confirm it and fulfill it. I'll give you two more examples. The example of Joseph. Joseph was on his own, sleeping. And then he had a dream. In that dream, the interpretation was simple. I saw my brothers and even my dad bowing before me. 
So I'm going, I'm, I'm royalty, okay? More than the language, I'm gonna blow. <laughs> but, but from that day, things went south. Just hearing what God told you, you found yourself in a pit. Then you are hearing voices, they are concluding, should we kill him? Should we? Imagine how you would have felt. <laughs> what have I done? Why did I dream? <laughs> you know, you know. And the next thing, you are on a platform in Egypt, you are being auctioned. 50 naira, going, going. So the 50 naira. Okay, 150. Who will buy him? 150. He was sold like a property. He had a dream to make matters worse. His father gave him a cloth of many colors, a coat of many colors. So that helped him to be able to picture how it will be, you know. But now those clothes were ripped from his body. The Bible says they killed animals, put the blood on that cloth, took it to his dad and said, an animal killed him. And he was a houseboy in Egypt. Praise the Lord. Well, things were beginning to pick up. Potiphar, the owner of the house where he was serving, liked him. Put him in charge of everything. And now, Potiphar's wife is catching feelings. <laughs> you know, uh, listen, remember what I told you about temptation? This is another practical example. When you are faced with temptation and you can think, you, you know, when you're faced with temptation, you don't think, you don't think. Check it. Many times you just go with the spur of the moment, with how you feel. But the moment Joseph could say, wait, wait a minute, this my master has trusted me so much. He put me in charge of it. Can I tell you something? In the heat of temptation, the moment you start thinking like that, you have already overcome. Yeah. I mean, you, you are, you're going to spoil everything. Because when you're faced with temptation, especially the temptation of this kind, sexual temptation, you don't think. You just, you know, you, I mean, you were together. The light went off. You know, you start hearing music in your mind. Slow is usually slow. Do. Do. You know, so you don't, you don't, you don't stay and start thinking. You just... But the moment you can, you can reason and say, wait. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Can I tell you something? If many people thought better, they would do better. When a man walks past a brothel and see ladies young enough to be his daughter, and instead of weeping and feeling compassion, he's aroused. He's not thinking. He's not thinking. Instead of feeling bad. But Joseph thought. And he thought out. He thought. He spoke out. He said, this man has been good to me. He said, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? Well, so now, child of God, but you end up in prison. So now, this God thing isn't going well for you at all. It's putting you in a lot of trouble. Praise the name of Jesus. But then, in prison, he meets two people. He meets a baker and a butler. One of them eventually is executed. One of them is restored to the palace. But he interpreted dreams for them. And eventually, when there was need for someone to interpret dreams, the guy remembered and said, oh, there's someone in prison. Bring him here. And so Joseph became prime minister. And when you look at the outcome of his life, you see that all the down times were necessary for the fulfillment of prophecy. All the down times. If it took 
being in prison for him to meet someone in the palace. How else would he have met someone from the palace? How else? Come on, are you with me? How else? How else? And even if he was the best dream interpreter in the land, it wouldn't have mattered if nobody knew. So now you see what appeared to be the negative circumstances fostering prophecy in his life. That's how Jaira works. Jaira means the providential God. Have you ever experienced the providence of God in your life? Where you step into a situation and the needs just arise, but the supply was waiting. I mean, God touches me in even the simplest ways like this. So now, we started out Boss Music Group. Most of the songs you hear today and appreciate, that was not the first recording. Some of you have heard the old recordings. All right, we had, we had tested some other producers who were not comfortable. with. The, I was not comfortable with the quality of the work, so we discarded it. You know, and then eventually we found this producer we could trust. He did the, the Kerigma album, and we're like, ah, yeah, nice one. We'll do the second one. And then God says, go to Abuja. And now I'm thinking about the cost. Like, how are we going to fly down every time we have a project? But the producer's pastor is also my friend. So I called him. I just felt led to call him in particular to tell him. I said, God has asked me to go to Abuja. I was actually complaining to him. See me see what And when I said it, he just burst into laughter. I said, why are you laughing? Like, in fact, the laughter was getting too loud. I was like, this is not fair now. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you <laughs> something sad that has happened to me. And you're laughing. And then he said, God has asked me to go to Abuja too. I said, eh? I almost said, Sokolo. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I said, you know. <laughs> you, you, you're like, what does that mean? It means praise God. So, <laughs> you know. But God had also asked him to move to Abuja. And he was taking that producer who was his music director with him. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, that simple thing touched me. I said, God, you know every detail of my life. And you always craft it in such a way. You know, look at me now. You see, here in Abuja, I'm in love with you guys. Do you understand? And now it's difficult for me to leave Abuja again. You know, God was telling me some things some days ago. I'm like, no, Lord, no, Lord. You know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Let us pray. All right. Don't worry, it's for the gospel, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. People release me to be here. All right. So just pay attention. You know, but I'm just like, well, I came here and met you guys by the providence of God. Praise the name of the Lord. And so I can always trust his leading no matter the difficulties that I face in the middle. Praise the Lord. And that's just the basic explanation of Jaira. He, he's providential. He's providential. So right at that moment, you know, God calls out to Abraham and says, oh, don't kill your son. Look in the ticket of the bush. There's a ram there. Slaughter that ram. What is a ram doing there? That's the revelation of Jaira. And so Abraham spoke prophetically. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. In fact, he told the servants, he says, wait for me. We will come back to meet you. He says, we're going to go up and worship and we will come back to meet you. Say glory to God. But, but, but think about it now and apply it to your personal life. Those of you going through hardship, listen if God is in it. Yeah. All 
things work together for good. Can I tell you something? We always win. And even if worst case scenario, your life on earth is so terrible. Consistently throughout, don't you understand? The life coming is not a spiritual life per se. You're going to receive a body. When we say you're going to live forever, we mean it literally. That's the promise of God. As Jesus was raised back to life, you will be raised back to life. Hallelujah. With a body void of sickness, void of any ailment, the Bible says he will wipe away tears from every eye. Glory be to God. And so we always win. But your conviction will influence your what? Just to be sure you were paying attention. Hallelujah. I, I told you I'll give you two examples. Look at Jesus also. The story of the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Very interesting story. <laughs> I want to read it to you. Luke chapter 24. It starts before 18, but maybe I'll read from verse 18. Background of the story, Jesus had just been crucified. Three days after, these two guys, they're on the road to Emmaus. They're sad. And you're just talking. And Jesus comes. He just shows up. And he joins them. And he says, what are you talking about? They say, oh, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, what about him? And they looked at Jesus and said, are you a stranger? How come you don't know what had happened? It was so, such a big news. And they talked about how, how Jesus was a prophet meant to redeem Israel. Look at it. In verse 18, it says, Then the one whose name was Cleopas, sounds like Clipper, answered and said, I can use some Clipper in my life, answered and said, just joking. Isn't it obvious I'm joking? Answered and said, I better get serious. <laughs> answered and said to him, Are you a stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known these things which happened there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? So they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. He said, they called him in past tense. Who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, everybody read together, want to go. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. It says we were hoping <laughs> that he will redeem Israel. He said he was the Messiah. And now he's dead. It's one thing for them not to know what the scriptures had clearly said about the Messiah, how that he was going to die, be buried, and rise again. But if they truly believed his word and the word of God that he will redeem Israel. If they had the faith that Abraham had. If God had said he will redeem Israel, well, even if he died, he will rise again. They were in a similar situation as Abraham. And the outcome of their conviction was different. They were sad. He was meant to, was meant to redeem Israel. Glory to God. But the person they were complaining about was with them. Hallelujah. Because that's the revelation of Jaira. That even the negative circumstances in this situation, the crucifixion of Jesus, is going to be the redemption of Israel. They thought that the crucifixion of Jesus, all right, had destroyed the plan for Jesus to redeem Israel. But it was fulfillment of the plan for Jesus to redeem Israel. You see that? That's how it works. That it, when prophecy has gone ahead, even the lowest of moments of my life will align with prophecy. It will end up fulfilling prophecy. Some of you can relate with, with what I'm saying. The terrible situations of your life, they've made you stronger. They've made you who you are. You know, and when you see people who have opportunities and blow it, they're just like, what's wrong with this one? You know? 
<laughs> this guy is so spoiled. Because you have some experience. And you know how to do better in those situations. Praise the Lord. You know, when you think about all the struggles that you went through, many of us agree that it made us better. There are opportunities that we have faced today that would not have made sense if we did not go through those struggles. What if you can trust God enough to conclude that no matter what happens, his word over your life will still be fulfilled? What if? What if? What if? That's the revelation of Jairus. So that clearly explains why Abraham did it. But the question now is, why did God do it? Why would God ask Abraham to kill his son? Quite all right. As he was about to do it, God said, stop. There's a ram for you. But why did God even suggest it in the first place? <laughs> what if Abraham did not hear the second time? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Exactly. You will be raised back to life. Hallelujah. Well, you have to hear. God can talk to you and get your attention. Do you believe that this morning? So now to explain that, I want to explain something to you. There is something... Theologians call typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Typology, all right? What is typology? Typology is the study of symbols in the Old Testament. It's the study of symbols in the Old Testament that prefigured. Symbols in the Old Testament that prefigured the redemptive work of Christ. I will quickly read a text or two to explain that to you. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. I will read just one text because of time. Maybe I will explain this next NBC. NBC this year will be summer. Manifest Bible course, the training program, will be summer this year so that some of our folks who are in school will be able to benefit Hallelujah. So, if you're thinking of traveling out, don't travel. All right. Hebrews chapter 10. You love the word of God that much. What are you traveling to go and do? Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Read together. One, two, go. Why are you reading like that? Read together. One, two, go. It says the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. You see that? There were types, prototypes, illustrations. That's what they were. The most important example. They sacrificed lambs every year for the atonement of their sins. But then John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You know, all the Jews should have felt very disappointed. In fact, Solomon would have put his hand on his head like this. And say, you know, when we were growing up, we thought it was phenomenal that Solomon was sacrificing so many lambs. Sacrifice more than a thousand one day. Ah, Solomon loves the Lord. It wasn't a demonstration of faith. <laughs> Are you listening? No wonder it wasn't spoken of in the New Testament at all. God wasn't impressed with that. Because the prophecy is one lamb. And not even an animal. The lambs were a picture of the real lamb of God, a person who takes away the sins of the world. David also wasted his money. You know, once they were moving the ark, they would take three steps, they would sacrifice the lamb. Take another few steps. Take another step, yeah? Bang. Right. <laughs> you know? 
and God must have been looking, what's wrong with these people? There is only one lamb. Hallelujah. God was not interested in sacrifices at all. Not, not only was he not interested in the sacrifices of human beings, he was not in sac- interested in sacrifices at all. It was just a picture of Jesus and his death. And don't forget where we started. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch explained that the lamb that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53 was actually Jesus. Come on, are you with me? And the story of Abraham trying to sacrifice Isaac was also typology. Explaining in a figure the redemptive work of Christ. Let's see if there are any similarities. Draw a table in your mind and let's compare. Jesus in the incarnation was the only begotten son of God. Any similarity with Isaac? All right, the Bible clearly tells us in Hebrews 11, he was the only begotten son of Abraham. All right? Jesus died and rose again. Maybe you didn't notice in that Hebrew that you read. The Bible actually says that Abraham received Isaac resurrected in a figure. Did you notice? So he received Isaac resurrected in a figure. And there are a lot of interpretations to it. But what he did was a demonstration of his faith in the real Lamb of God and his sacrifice. So he received Isaac back a righteous man. All right. But figuratively, Isaac also died and rose again by faith in Christ anyways. And maybe you didn't notice, you know, when we're reading the story, I said, you should repeat something. Who remembers? It was, it took him three days to get to the place of the sacrifice, right? I believe that's symbolic. I believe it's also symbolic that when they were climbing the mountain, the Bible says that Abraham put the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's shoulder. Very symbolic, right? He put the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's shoulder. And Isaac went. I believe it was also symbolic that Isaac did not protest. Hallelujah. So this was simply God. Hey, listen. So it turns out that the true context of the revelation of Jairah is salvation. God was simply telling us, praise the Lord, that when it comes to your salvation, it's not going to be by your efforts. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to present my own son. And he's going to lay down his life willingly for your sake. I am the providential God. Before you realize your need for salvation, the plan was already executed. The plan was mine. The execution was mine. It's all me. That's the revelation of Jairah. In such a way that when you heard that you were a sinner, you also heard that a sacrifice has been paid for you. That's providence. So we never had to say, oh God, we are sinners. Do something. Listen, right from the fall of Adam, as he was giving the punishment and the... And, and all the consequences, he said, and the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpents. That's Jaira at work. He didn't, he didn't wait for them to say, help us out. There was no prayer made. At the last NBC, I told you um, the Latin name for that. It's called Protevangelion. All right. That's the first presentation of the gospel. That was the first time the gospel was preached. In the Bible. It says the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpents. And women we know in procreation don't carry seed. In procreation for pregnancy is the man who infuses the seed into the woman and she carries the baby. But when God said the seed of the woman. He, it was an intimation of the virgin birth. Okay. 
Are you with me? That was an intimation of the virgin birth. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpents. From the beginning, the plan was already declared. From the beginning. Listen. And so the revelation of Jairah should bring us to a point of humility. We thought, we thought, we thought that we could do something to save ourselves. But it's salvation, not collaboration. You see, you, you, we, we thought we understood salvation, but we thought, oh, we'll also do this. We'll also, you will do your part, I'll do your part. And he's saying, listen, before you even knew you needed saving, I had planned and executed the plan. So the revelation of Jairus should bring us to a point of humility to say, you know what? Why do I feel I can execute something I didn't initiate? I don't have enough intelligence to come up with the salvation plan. I don't have enough intelligence. I don't have enough. How would I have come up with that? That God had a prototype, a man, through whom all mankind was meant to be birthed, and that prototype was corrupted. All mankind is corrupted. It's, it's all over. If God wants to solve the problem, he will kill everybody. How's he going to solve the problem? He's going to make another prototype a second and last Adam? Come on, are you here? Yes, this, is, this is a divine plan. This is the providential God anticipating your needs. Listen, look at it when you were growing up. By the time you realized you needed education, you had been going to school for many years. Imagine your parents waited for you to say, Daddy, I would like to go to school. We will not go now. When there is game. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? But listen, you got to a point you're like, I'm, I'm glad I, act, I, I at least know these things. But when you were glad, you were already educated. Many times, your parents will force you, go to school. You will cry. <laughs> Hallelujah. Even your earthly parents are providential. They anticipate your needs. When you are a child, you don't think about the future. You don't say, oh, I'm going to be hungry. Daddy, give me a lunch pack. Mm -mm. When you are going, they take you with the lunch pack. And so when you are hungry, the teacher just looks into your lunch pack and everything is there. How much more your heavenly father? How much more? And then some of you now, you've been saved, but you're still struggling. You're just like, ah. Uh, God did not anticipate that I will still struggle like this. Oh, oh, all that I've done is about to ruin his salvation plan. It's not true! Yeah. When God called you righteous, he saw all your weaknesses. He saw all your frailties. And he justified you still. He didn't wait for anybody to endorse you, to speak well of you, you know, to send a letter of approval. He didn't wait for that. He paid no respect to the culture of men. Even in Cornelius' house, based on the understanding of the Jews, only Jews should be saved. Peter was just there to fulfill all righteousness. I had this weird trance and God said, go. I didn't really want to go. Next thing, they were already in my house saying, come to Cornelius' house. So I just went, you know, I just went reluctantly, you know, and I was just like, you know, you know, just going through the motions, telling them about Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible says, as they heard the word. While he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word. Peter later said, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. He says, who was I that I should withstand God? Hallelujah. Listen, he knows you more than you know yourself. He factored in your frailties. He factored in your weaknesses. And he chose to justify you. When he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is either that statement is one of the most careless statements in the Bible, or it is true. Jesus won't possibly make that statement if there were other requirements for salvation. It's, it's poor preaching. Poor preaching. If there are other requirements, he won't just say that whosoever believes... Should not perish. You didn't give other conditions. He says they should believe. They will not perish. 
but have everlasting life. Is that really true? That all I have to do is believe that my works will never contribute to my making heaven. Never. Not one percent. Not two. Not five. My works, my works at best will be a testament to the world that I'm saved. Not a requirement for salvation. Listen, what a lot of people think about Christianity is this. Imagine I come to your shop, you sell TV, and I say, I want to buy TV. And I ask you, okay, you want to buy TV? Where's your receipt? <laughs> Duh, I don't have receipt because I don't have a TV yet. You have to give me the TV, then I have a receipt. So when a lot of people think that works will get them to heaven, it's as silly as that. Because you have to be from heaven. Come on. To have those kind of works. So don't make the results the requirement. Are you with me? Stop making the results the requirement. So when you fail, remember that he's providential. Because he's providential, his plan is so complete that it covered even your errors. Covered even your errors. Question, did Jesus die for my sins or not? That's the question I want to ask you. I want you to ask yourself, did Jesus die for my sins or not? Did he die for some or all? And so, when I fail, I don't want to fail. I don't want to sin. And I have the Holy Spirit always prompting me and guiding me. But because I'm growing, I'm still growing spiritually. I'm still learning to walk in his steps. I still make mistakes. But when I make the mistakes, those mistakes, were they paid for or not? Let's not confuse ourselves. Did he die for my sins or not? Well, he did. He did. And that's his providence. Hallelujah. Say that is providence. Time is far spent. I'm going to continue this. I'm just going to read one text and then we pray. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. I want you to rise to your feet as you read this. There's a song that says, you did not wait for me to call out to you before you clothe yourself in frail humanity. You did not wait for me to cry out to you before I heard your voice calling me. I'm forever grateful for the cross. I'm forever grateful that you came to seek and save the lost. Hallelujah. Are you grateful this morning for his providence? His gyra in your life. Meaning none of your frailties will astonish him. Hallelujah. None of your frailties will scatter his plan. Hi, my God. What do I do now? Oh. Here's the providential God. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus. Oh, glory to God. I challenge you to see Jesus today. See him for who the word of God says he is. Say, but I see Jesus. He says, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. He has tasted death for me. Hallelujah. There is no death for me to die. Hallelujah. Only life. The Bible says, for God to love the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Any whosoever here today. Oh, oh, I tell you that's my middle name. That's my middle name. Hey, I am whosoever. Hey, I believe. And so I'll never die. Hallelujah. Just give him praise right now. Thank him.
Thank him. Thank him. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809 996 7000. Blessings.